So let's say that you're a musician in your early 20s and you strike out to Nashville to make it big. You pull off getting hooked up with one of your idols and record a record together, a really good one. The record never gets released. Eventually, you go to New York for a stint and then to Los Angeles where you meet artists like Rosie Flores, Bill Bremer, Pete Anderson, Lucinda Williams, and Dale Watson, all A-listers. Things are looking up. You get a manager and cut a record for CBS. Like your first record, though, it also does not get released. By the time your first record does get released, you're in your mid-30s. It gets great reviews, but none of its songs are hits, although most of them get re-recorded by other artists and become hits for them instead. You get dropped by the big boys every time you make a record with them, it seems, even after being nominated for a Grammy. RCA, Warner Brothers, Columbia, and Atlantic Records all say their goodbyes to you, sooner or later. If you're like a lot of people, this would seem like writing on the wall. Maybe you should have gone with something else, something you had some success with early on, like acting. Maybe this business is not for you. At least not the whole solo career thing. Maybe writing songs on Music Row is really where the universe is pointing you. But Jim Lauderdale is not most people. Jim Lauderdale not only kept up his solo career, he also wrote a bunch of hit songs for some of country music's biggest artists and did a whole lot more. And it really couldn't have happened any other way. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, in our episode on the King of Broken Hearts, Jim Lauderdale. The King of Broken Hearts doesn't ask much from his friends And he has quite a few of them They know he will understand That's just the way it goes Broken hearts doesn't know he's a king. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Southern Songs and Stories is sponsored by you when you join us as a patron and help keep this series going. More information is on our website at southernsongsandstories.com and our crowdfunding page, patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. You can subscribe to the Southern Songs and Stories podcast on our website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, CastBox, and now Plex. Would you take a moment to rate the show and comment on this podcast there? It's one of the easiest and best ways to get more people like you to know about Southern Songs and Stories and the artists we spotlight. We'll give you a shout out on the next show whenever you give us a positive review, and we'll mention you like recent reviewers B. Swanky, Carol, Mr. Soul 69, Johnny Dollar, and Dream Spider. Thanks for listening to Southern Songs and Stories, and we welcome your comments by email at southernsongsandstories at gmail.com, on Twitter at South Scenes on our Facebook page, as well as on Instagram at South Stories. When rain has hung the leaves with tears, I want you near to kill my fears. Help me to leave all my blues behind Standing in your heart Is where I want to be And long to be Ah, but I may as well Try and catch the
more things change, the more they stay the same. A half century or more ago, there were often multiple versions of the same song on the charts. And bands like The Birds, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, and others made hits out of Bob Dylan's hits. Aretha Franklin covered several Beatles songs and made new hits out of them, and so on. And you just heard a bit of Jim Lauderdale and Roland White's version of the Donovan song, Try and Catch the Wind, from their self-titled album recorded in 1979, but only released in 2018. Today, in the pop world, we're not hearing covers of other hits as much as we're hearing what is essentially the same song, played in different ways. Hit songs are written by a handful of top writers, and they employ all the same methods in writing so the listeners get what the hitmakers know will be accepted. The Millennial Whoop is an example here. Song plays a fifth note of a scale, drops to the third note in that scale, then goes back to the fifth, and this is accompanied by wah-oh-wah-oh wah-oh vocals. With country music and what is now often called Americana or alt-country, Remember that it has been playing second fiddle to pop music since the 1950s. It just never has sold as much as rock and pop. But Nashville has certainly tried, and has moved its sound over to a more pop direction over the past couple of decades especially. A more homogenized and polished echo of what began with Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family almost a century ago. It's the sound that sells the most, played by attractive artists, now singing mostly about love and devotion, the right way to live, and breakups. Just like half a century or more ago, these artists don't write a lot of the music they play, with some exceptions. Now, just like then, there are hit songwriters who may or may not perform and make records of their own. Jim Lauderdale is one of the former. Luckily for us, his music is rooted in the music of artists like Buck Owens, Ralph Stanley, and George Jones, which is on full display in his many hits for artists like the Dixie Chicks, George Strait, Elvis Costello, Patti Loveless, Vince Gill, Kathy Matea, Blake Shelton, and others. bit of I Lost You from Elvis Costello, written by Jim Lauderdale from his National Ransom album released in 2010. Not a hit per se, as Costello has just two top 40 hits, but it is interesting to note how Elvis Costello's career has some parallels with Jim Lauderdale's. They both got their start in the late 70s, are both award-winning songwriters with diehard fan bases, and both have had little in the way of charting singles. They are almost household names, and successful in a business that typically spits out any non-household names at the altitude they're flying. To be successful anywhere, but in the arts especially, I think, you have to be malleable. You have to bend and stretch to uncomfortable places at times and be good at it. When you get knocked down, you have to get back up, and when you're knocked down, you should be able to do well down there, too. Like Bruce Lee said, In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. And as a young man, Jim Lauderdale had difficulty because of his thick Southern accent. My story has a parallel to yours in that we're both of the generation that to go and be successful in media or in show business like you, it was understood that you would drop that Southern accent. Mm. So at an early age, I don't know if I was even conscious of it. But I downplayed my Southern accent. And your story was trying to, was it in school or yeah. was it when you were first breaking into the business? But you were told pretty much point blank to drop the accent. Right. That was at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And at that time, and it's probably that way still maybe in the school of, of drama, I majored in, in theater and I had been in some plays at Carolina Friends School and worked in the summer times at the Flat Rock Playhouse as an assistant maintenance man. And it was time for college, and I auditioned and got in, you know. And 
but I wanted to do music. I was intrigued and had fun doing these plays, but I did not have, which is what I think you need to have in order to be an actor or whatever you do. You've got to really, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm an actor and I want to be an actor. And mine was more like, gosh, I love playing the banjo and I really like music. Now I need to stay in school, but, and I'm not, you know, and it, it's an incredible program there. And I, I certainly used these tools. I'm really glad I went cause I, I got employed while I was trying to get a record deal for many years doing plays where I was playing a guitar, banjo and singing. And I might've had an acting part in it, but they, you know, like Sean Colvin, played my wife i was jesse james in this play called diamond studs the red clay ramblers were the band and played the gang you know so there it was that kind of stuff and it was a blast to do but at school they wanted us to and i had my accent was a lot thicker and i remember being in seventh grade when i was living in charlotte and the, the even other older guys were teasing me because they'd say Oh, here's Jim Lauderdale, you know, and I didn't realize I was saying stuff like, you know, I was talking like that and it's fine, you know, but, but what happened was at that time they said, okay, listen, you need to speak in a neutral accent that has no, no Southern, no Northern, no Midwestern, you know, it's just nothing, you know, but it's just very kind of straight ahead, I guess. And so I don't know now. now. And also, too, it's like you'd get these warnings. It's like you're still saying your A's like this. And uh, if you don't get that together, you're not going to be here next term. And so it's kind of scary. And um, when I do see that, te- one of those teachers, when I play in Winston-Salem, comes to the show and I'm still a little bit <laughs> on edge. And they're wonderful. I really love this person. They're they're wonderful. And they're back. really supportive. And they don't come to me after the show either. Go, mm-hmm. I see that you're, you know. I mean, but but I I I totally understand that. You can't be in a play where you're playing. So you have to be able. It's like okay, you've got to do a Brook. You know a. a like a guy from Queens, New York for this role, or you have to have a British accent or you have to whatever, or you have to have a Southern accent, you know, but it's funny when somebody, you hear somebody at a movie or TV, that's not from the South and they do, you know, a Southern accent is kind of a stereotype, probably what people in England or New York think too. You've got to really, there's a musicality and a certain, I mean, you know, hey, the Outer Banks of North Carolina sounds totally different than somebody from Troutman, North Carolina, where I lived in my early years, you know, or um, different parts of East Tennessee and different parts of North Carolina or different parts of Virginia and North Carolina, different parts of South Carolina, you know, though different parts of Texas. Arkansas. I mean, there's different regions, Mississippi, you know, and they're, they're slightly different. And, but I, of course, you know, see the beauty and it's rare. Gosh, it seems like as time goes on, I meet fewer and fewer people that have a really thick Southern accent for some reason. And maybe it's because so many people, you know, we all move a lot or different people move into our towns or whatnot, or maybe somebody makes fun of the way somebody talked, but I love a real thick Southern accent. I think that we're in an um, era now where it is more accepted or maybe even cool to be from the South. Mm -hmm. uh, It's the diphthong friendly environment. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I could even ride a caterpillar just to try to get there faster. There's no guarantee when I'll arrive. Waiting at the clock until the ticking stops. 
Oh, I could even ride a caterpillar just to try to get there faster. There's no guarantee when I'll arrive. A bit of Slow as Molasses from Jim Lauderdale's 31st and latest album, Time Flies. You know, Jim may have dropped most of his southern accent early on, but he still certainly sings southern. One, two, three. Gold and silver, have I none? I can give you more. Gold and silver, have I none? That's Gold and Silver from Jim's 30th LP, which was really his first, the self-titled collaboration with bluegrass mandolin player Roland White. The tapes of this session were lost and never made it onto a record until almost 40 years later. It's a solid album, and I have to believe that it was immensely frustrating to Jim and Roland, but especially Jim, that this first effort was lost. But you would never know it from his many interviews, and you would probably never even have picked up on it when he played shows back then. Jim seems to always be positive, quick to smile, and ready with a joke. He is always on. I asked everyone I came across in making this episode if they ever saw another side, if they ever saw him let things get him down. So far, I haven't found anyone who has witnessed Jim acting like anything other than what you see on stage. Here's Glenn Dicker, co-owner of Yep Rock Records, Jim's current label once again, talking about some of the rough patches he knows about. When it comes down to it, Jim has has his own ideas about what he wants to do, and it's very powerful, um, you know, in terms of uh, his creativity and 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 output, um, which can make it difficult for you know managers, record labels, etc., to kind of try to corral that creativity into something that could be marketed and in a successful way. So it's been challenging, um, for sure. Um, but you know, my sense of it is, is he, he's, he's, uh, you know, true artist, one of the best, um, certainly songwriters out there. And, you know, I think that he, he really believes in himself and he believes in what he's doing. And, um, you know, certainly there are times when we've had conversations where there's, uh, you know, can be some frustration um, about what's going on out there, but you know, he he never really lets it kind of uh, dampen his spirit. I mean, uh, that's what I've seen. I mean, all of us get frustrated, um, and we can put on a a brave face or whatever. Um, but you know, look behind the scenes, we all get frustrated, and and we uh, can it can be a little bit uh, disappointed by by things that don't go the way we hope they do, but. Jim has uh, the ability to kind of move on to the next thing fairly quickly, um, and he always has that sort of uh, bright, positive vibe um, behind the work. Writer Craig Hevighurst has worked with Jim for a long time on Music City Roots, the Nashville variety show that Craig produces. Here's what he had to say. I think it's maybe fair to say that the people that, the only people who could really know him and those layers are the people that co-write with him. He co-writes so regularly and so prolifically and with such wide, uh, such a wide range of writers. And he's, and that process of course depends on candor, trust, vulnerability. And that would have to go on in, in those writing rooms. I've never had the privilege of writing a song with Jim but I'd be so curious what it was what it was like. The gym that you see on stage is very similar to the gym you talk to backstage, um, which is always extremely um, friendly, and he'll tell you news, he'll tell you a story, he'll tell you a dirty joke. But yeah, there there is a, a degree to which we who know him at that level, the professional level, fun, you know, kind of professional friends, I think I sort of wonder sometimes what he's like when he's really unguarded and, and when he's having 
uh, a long dinner and had a few drinks, whatever. I don't even know if he drinks or not. But, um, but I will say this, that when we did an interview recently about his new album with, well, really the rediscovered reissue of the album he made with Roland White in 1979, and Jim was on the phone from, from, uh, from the road, but we had an interview about this experience that I think gave me more insight into his character and his musical passions and his aspirations, his, his ambition, uh, than anything I've ever, uh, that I've ever learned before. Um, he's, he, his deep, deep love of bluegrass and country music, it's always been apparent, but here, something about the way he told the story about coming to Nashville specifically to meet his hero, Roland White, and getting the opportunity to make a record with him, in, with, with Roland producing in the basement of Earl Scruggs' home studio, uh, really made him, made, made Jim a very recognizable figure for me, a lot like other musicians that I've seen, and, and humanized him in a, in a very important way. phenomenon coined by singer songwriter Kim Ritchie who in a year 2000 interview referred to the fact that Lauderdale was nominated for a Grammy for his work with Ralph Stanley but was released from a record deal with RCA not long after putting him in the company of many country artists that were signed to major labels in the 1990s but failed to get radio airtime and had their contracts dropped after making one or two albums only the megastars got the airplay then, and the problem of having much more quality music than can fit into the mold that Nashville cast for it continues today. Is one or two records, I forget if it was one or two, but with RCA, Joe Galanti was running it. He, Joe Galanti for, you know, really tried for a time, I think, made a good faith effort, if not a smart effort, um, to build an, you know, kind of Americana-ish, rootsy roster uh, alongside the commercially successful artists on RCA and make a well-rounded label and give those artists a shot at a, at a radio environment that was just never going to take them on. I believe he did the same with Tim O'Brien. I believe Tim's was on RCA in that era. And there were a few others. But the sheer mismatch of aspirations of of aesthetic of sensitivity to true country music and the world of commercial radio that was you know in the 90s uh, maybe around 2000 but it just both you know i there's a lot to learn there about how nashville and music row how the major labels on music row have did their dance as best they could and now i think they've just given you know I, for realistic reasons just given up on that effort Sorrow came to stay with me I don't think that it plans to leave When I held the cards in my hand People would pretend I wonder if Jim thinks about what-if scenarios about his path in life. I know I do. What if I had actually been accepted at that college? What if I had returned the call about that job in public relations? You probably have some of these what-ifs, too. But what if Jim had gone into acting rather than music? 
it brings to mind all the crossover between actors and musicians. How many actors do you know who are also professional musicians? Let's see. There's Billy Bob Thornton, Hugh Laurie, Jenny Lewis, Zoe Deschanel, John C. Riley, Jack Black, and Minnie Driver, for starters. Musicians crossing over to act? Well, there's Madonna, Tom Waits, Mark Wahlberg, Lyle Lovett, John Lurie, Dwight Yoakam, and LL Cool J. Of all of these names, Jenny Lewis of the band Rilo Kiley has the most in common with Jim Lauderdale, I think. She, like Jim, acted early on and then switched over to music exclusively. So what kind of actor would Jim have been? Westerns seem like a good fit here. Something like Lonesome Dove. He would have probably made a good Sheriff July Johnson there. Say so you're from Arkansas, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, Fort Smith. I was a sheriff there. Not now. Today I've got the yesterdays. They took me to another place. Just visiting what's gone away. Today I've got the yesterdays. Testing and we are here with Jim Lauderdale on Southern Songs and Stories. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Joe. Wait a second. There you go. Try that again. Thanks, Joe. There you are. Hey, Time Flies, your brand new record on Yep Rock. It's got a lot of great songs. I can't imagine how you can keep this pace. Where does this muse come from? Um, part of it, Joe, comes from necessity. Because, and by that I mean, I have the studio time booked. I'm in there. I've got all, you know, you'd think... With all the other time in between shows and studio stuff that I'd be more prepared, but a lot of times I'm not. And so I come up with a lot of my music because I, I'm under pressure to the clock is going to be ticking or the clock is ticking and uh, melodies come to me a lot. Um, Lyrics are the slower thing for me, but a lot of times I get it, it gets more in, intensified just the, the writing process as I'm about to go in the studio to make a record or, and that even went back to where, where I'd be in the studio with Ralph Stanley doing a record and I'd go, ah, guys, um, Take take a little break, um, you know, because we'd finish the song and Ralph go, all right, what else you got? And I'd say, um, I'm just, I'm finishing up this one. Go go, you know, maybe go ahead and go to lunch or something. And so then, you know, inspiration would come or the night before, like a the for our first record, it was called "I Feel Like Singing Today," and the night before, I went in the idea came and the melody and then the next morning I finished it and boom went in. So sometimes, and he told me that I was real embarrassed because it's kind of a strange feeling when you've got people waiting on you and you think it's, and this isn't everything by the way, but this is some, sometimes this happens. And, um, uh, and I told Ralph, I said, I'm, you know, Ralph, this is embarrassing, but I'm still working on this. He goes, oh, that's what Carter would do, too. He'd, he'd go in the other room for a little while. And he'd, so I'm glad I'm not alone in that. Well, you could compare him to John Hartford as somebody who let, uh, you know, a, a hit song here or there become a the floor become the foundation on which you build an artist's career that can be that much more unique and take many more chances because of it. In the way that his drive works, it seems to manifest itself in a similar way in how he writes because he talks about coming to the studio to record sessions and not necessarily having the songs fleshed out. So he's got a little, little pressure moment there, and he has to rise to the occasion. And, he's, and he does that a lot, it seems, but you would think it would lead towards half 
baked material, and it really doesn't. So can you help me solve how, how that formula really works, and how does he keep coming away a winner there, winner with all of this? It reminds me of journalism. I swear, it really does. You know, de- people like myself just thrive on deadline. And if I have to write something thoughtful and probing and essay-like, uh, I try to get an early start on it. Man, it's just almost never just flows. But if it's, you know, a day to go or an hours to go, it happens. And it's just a certain personality type of tapping into your creative streak and so it, uh, I don't find that all that uh, uh, bizarre. I do find it uh, exceptional that he allows himself to do that when he's got both, uh, you know, producers, sidemen, musicians, and and a budget uh, at stake. Jim went on to talk about what he could teach aspiring songwriters. Number one, I would say don't doubt yourself. Don't think you're nuts because you think, I had this idea and I want to write a song. Then you've got to just open up your imagination and go with it and don't edit yourself too much. You know, Don't be thinking, oh, that's... You know, here's this line, but I don't know what it means. That's probably crazy. What am I doing? Who am I trying to kid? I can't write a song. You know, just let it happen. And, you know, there's a certain part of your brain, I guess, that this stuff, you know, it's kind of a mystery, you know, creativity. Like if you're, you know, painting something, you know, an abstract thing or or writing a song. And... There's, there's different things, you know, like you can listen conversationally, you know, just in your, when I'm co-writing with somebody, a lot of times it's, I, I never anymore usually bring, like go, hey, here's a melody. I'm, I mean, unless it's just a lyricist, but if it's a guy sitting there or a gal with their guitar or piano, I like to just start from scratch and just be spontaneous. Sometimes, though, the co-writer will go, hey, I've got this uh, title. You know, sometimes you sit with the co-writer and they and they go, well, I've got a list of titles, and they go down this list. And then if something strikes me, I'll go, hey, that's a cool title. And um, But as far as these... Uh, n- you know, new songwriters, you just have to kind of be good to yourself. Don't beat yourself up as you're writing this song and know that every songwriter that ever started to write a song was in the, in the same place really, you know, and, and it's not impossible for anybody, no matter you know, whether they want to be a professional songwriter or they're just writing for the joy of it and the fun of it or the challenge or as a hobby or whatever, it's all okay, you know. And and so when, so when I'm saying don't edit yourself, don't, you know, a lot of my songs, they'll, be, they'll start with the first line. Maybe it won't be the title. Sometimes... Sometimes it's great to start from a title because then you, you can think, well, that pretty much spells it out of what this is going to be about. And But sometimes you might just get a line of a song. That, that happens with me a lot. It's like the first line or maybe something that will be a line later on. And it's like, I'm not really even sure what that means, but... I'll find out. Or if you're strumming your guitar and for instance, you play like an E minor or something, you're playing this minor, probably, you know, a lot of times, like for instance, 
I'll put down a melody and I'll have the vocal melody too and the chords. And even if I'm let even if I'm co-writing or not, it's like you kind of can tell the mood of the song in a way. It's like, well, this seems like a happy melody. So I'll write something kind of happy or else, you know what? I'm going to kind of switch it up and this is a happy melody, but I'm going to kind of have this hidden meaning or have it so it can be taken both ways or there's this irony. Yeah, like there. a song like Together Again from Buck Owens. Yeah, right. The, the saddest mm-hmm. song yeah. that is on the surface a happy circumstance. Yeah, that's right. Of course, I asked Jim about his songwriting for other musicians too. With other people, a lot of times I'll channel, you know, I'll think, what would they sing? What, what, how is their voice? What's like George Strait, for instance, he's done the most of stuff of mine. He's done about 14. And so I would think, you know, okay, what, and, but interestingly enough, rarely has, did he ever cut something I intentionally wrote for him. Even there are many instances where either alone or with a co-writer, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like, I feel so good about this. This is a hit. This is a hit song for George Strait. And then I get it to him and nothing. But the ones a lot of times he'd pick would be, it's like, oh, well, I've given him everything new. Oh, what have I got to lose? I'll give him this other new one. And then those would be the ones he'd end up doing. Jim loves to collaborate and will get a lot of songs started by trying out hooks and parts of songs with other artists in the studio. That's the way folks like Paul Simon write and uh, his name's Steve Tyler from Aerosmith, those guys, Rolling Stones. A lot of times they just kind of are jamming, in this, especially if you're a hugely successful rock band. You get in the studio and you just kind of start messing around and then fill in the blanks later. I remember a story about... Los Lobos being on the same label as Paul Simon back around the time he was coming up with Graceland or mm. was before Graceland. And they were put in the studio with Paul Simon just to jam around and get some ideas flowing. <laughs> and they were basically like, well, we don't do that. Uh-huh. That, that, that's just not in our DNA. Huh. So Interesting. Yeah. See, everybody's different. And I know some recording artists and writers, they would never do that but i just have to sometimes mm-hmm. you know unfortunately now when i write with robert hunter uh, a great lyricist one of my, you know uh, he and jerry garcia wrote so many great songs for the grateful dead and those songs were they're they're done you know there there is there have been occasions where i have been in the studio and laid down a melody and then just sent robert those tracks in case something came up for him and he sent stuff and so sometimes we've done that and I've been in the studio before and I haven't wanted Robert to feel pressure but I've really needed stuff and so I did a was in the studio with the North Mississippi All-Stars the first time and I realized because I had this time booked with them And it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. And so we had recorded two songs the first night that were songs I had written with Robert, and they went well. And then I had one for the next morning. Then I started emailing Robert saying, hey, I'm messing around the studio today. If you have anything, you know, you want to send. So he started sending me these lyrics that day. And we write really quickly together. And when I, when I do write with a lyricist, sometimes, and most of the time with Robert, there were a few lyrics he sent me that I just couldn't immediately come up with something. And they'd sit there for a year or, or several months. But sometimes with the lyricist, it's automatic right away. I'll look at the lyric, and as I'm reading the lyric, a melody will come to me, and I'll record it on a, now my phone it used to be a cassette player 
But um, uh, I'm, I am unfortunately not a one of those poet, lyricist writers where I'll write notebooks of lyrics and go, hmm, I think I'll put a melody to this. It's kind of opposite for me. I'll have tons of l- fully arranged songs lyrically, whether it's it's just me and my guitar, just me vocally without any instruments to use later. One of the many songs that Robert Hunter wrote with Jim Lauderdale and the leadoff track to one of Jim's two records with Ralph Stanley, Deep Well of Sadness, from Lost in the Pines. Lauderdale and Hunter have gone through stretches of writing 18 songs in eight days when making their album Reason and Rhyme, and later 10 songs in a day and a half for Carolina Moonrise. Jim has collaborated with a who's who of musicians from the icons on to current stars. If you wanted to play six degrees of roots music, you could probably have mostly just one degree from Jim to everyone good in the business. He has been dubbed Mr. Americana and the Wagon Master upon winning the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Americana Honors and Awards, named for the original Wagon Master, Porter Wagner. He's a two-time Grammy winner and has been nominated for three more. But he's not slowing down. He's seemingly constantly on tour or in a studio. One gets the sense that Jim still wants something more. I think he could could certainly use a break or two. I mean, he is um, a guy that deserves way more attention. Um, and, you know, to me, he's kind of at that legendary type of status where he, he's just put out so many records and, and the quality is there. Um, so, you know, I think in time, and I hope that we're part of this, uh, this effort, um, we, you know, we want to raise him up and to the type of level that you would expect, um, you know, somebody who's, a, you know, kind of, uh, well, you know, he's kind of like, I feel like he's the king of Americana in a way. And I feel like, you know, he, has uh has been such a big part of that and the resurgence of it and you know i think he uh he kind of has it in his soul um so you know certainly i've seen him get frustrated but i think that the his positive vibe and and kind of hopefulness towards music making is just his it's sort of an inner engine, man. That's just way stronger than anything. You know, he doesn't he doesn't let the the sort of negative stuff sink in too deep. That's for sure. I think it's a bit of a low key force of will on his part because Jim is funny and he's self deprecating, uh, but he is ambitious. Uh, there is no question. But you know, I think there's a lot of other artists who are wonderfully talented who could use some of that uh, in Americana and Roots music, frankly, who ought to um, take on the responsibility and the personal pride or whatever it is to drive toward getting that next batch of songs um, out on record. Because Jim's, Jim's proof you can do it.
Oh gosh, there are there there been a lot of funny things sometimes on the road. It it goes from the ridiculous, I mean the sublime to the ridiculous. It, um, I was Buddy Miller and I was were talking to Sam Bush the other day, and and uh, he was talking about touring with Leon Russell and how they were opening up for this tour for Leon Russell, the new grass revival. And he was the biggest act in the world. They got to open up. And so they'd be playing for thousands of people. And then he said, and then when the tour was over next morning, we went back to, uh, uh, Kentucky and we were playing, you know, had 10 days straight in the so-and-so club, you know, where there was like, you know, 30 people. And it was just, you know, it, and so it it is, that has happened. I mean, not playing in front of thousands of people. And, but, but, you know, just you, you never know what's going to happen out there. And, and you learn to laugh later at the, you know, hard situations that really at the time you know, really make you mad or make you want to give up or cry or something like that. And then later on, you know, you're telling somebody the story. Now, as you're asking me this, see, I can't think of a specific, what originally came to my mind was when Buddy Miller was my guitar player. um, And we were both living in Los Angeles and um, we were, had a bunch of dates like, driving and we hired this driver because we met we had a gig in austin then this driver we we're going to take a rent a car and drive to new mexico and then go all these play this festival and go to all these places and the driver had stayed up all night long and so buddy and i had to drive and we we're so mad at this guy and we finally we get to new mexico and it was really hot and we found this hotel in this town and and the folks at the hotel didn't speak English and they had one room. And so we got, and there was a cot there and it was really hot in the room. And it was about, we were only going to be able to sleep for a few hours and then keep driving. And, and I walk over to the sink and there were (laughs) all these flies around the sink and, and there was this dried puke. And Buddy uses the word or used to use the word puke a lot. And so it was just, you know, and so I was just looked at and said, oh, my gosh, you know, this is like, this is what I've done all this, you know, to, to live like this. And, you know, but it, 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 it's kind of a roller coaster sometimes. But really, but music, you realize how much you will put up with or sacrifice or do just to play like I think Joe Ely had the quote of like sometimes you travel 23 hours to play that one hour and that's you know that that's true a lot you know you go to these great lengths and and as you're trying to get there you think to yourself I can't do this anymore I can't do this and then you get on stage and have the time of your life and then wash rinse repeat but it's it's it so a lot of times you know you're still paying dues or still have to but it's it all music makes it all worth it you know because that's this bond we have this common thing and um you know it makes it all worthwhile that's terrific southern songs and stories with jim lauderdale thank you Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our supporters on Patreon, especially Rob, Mitch, and Mark. Thanks to Don Mack at Bluegrass Planet Radio for carrying the show. I encourage you to spread the word about this podcast and consider helping us by subscribing and commenting on our show and by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter at South Scenes, and Instagram at South Stories. Plus, our podcasts are available on practically every platform there is. This is Southern Songs and Stories. 
the music of the South and the artists who make it. Osiris. Well, my favorite Jim Lauderdale story, as it's affected me personally, comes from well before Music City Roots and before I, uh, probably before I even ever interviewed him as a journalist. And I was just maybe met him the first time. So this was back in like 2002. And uh, my fiance was in Nashville visiting uh, from New York City, where I had courted her. And she was, uh, has, accepted my offer of marriage and had come down to uh, to do just to, you know, she'd make periodic trips to Nashville. And one of those coincided in the springtime with the uh, Hall of Fame induction uh, gala. And we went to that together and we chatted with Jim for a while and I strolled away and she continued to talk to Jim just socially, met him for the first time, though she was familiar with him as an artist and fan. And I came back and my my fiance Taylor said, "You know, we've been looking for a suit, and I told Jim you were looking for a, something to wear to the wedding because we were going to get married in the Country Music Hall of Fame rotunda. That was our plan, and so I was kind of looking for something Western, something in a nudie suit, and I hadn't really begun looking. But Jim said, uh, well, I've got this uh, suit that I picked up recently from uh, a friend of mine that I bought. I get these ever occasionally, and it's a, it's, an, it's a nudie suit. It's an authentic nudie suit, and it belonged to Carl Smith, and it might fit you. And I'm like, what? You're, you're, gonna, you're offering to loan me a suit? And um, sure enough, through his friend Ali O'Shea, uh, while Jim was on the road, I went over to Jim's house, and Ali had the suit ready, and I tried it on, and bloody well, it fit perfectly. I mean, it was crazy. And it really was. It had Carl Smith's monogram inside on the nudie label. It was from about 1969. It was, I thought it was going to be spangly. It had no rhinestones. It was black with little white darts. And it was, it, it was perfect. If I'd looked for the platonically perfect wedding suit in the universe, uh, it would have looked like this. And Jim loaned me the suit that I got married in way before I, I got to work with him. And he's a generous guy. Hey, Joe, where'd you find that pearly girly? Where'd you get that jolly dolly? How'd you rate that dish I wish was mine? Hey, Joe, she's got skin that's creamy, dreamy, eyes that look so lovey-dovey, lips as red as cherry berry wine. Now listen, Joe, I ain't no hero. Let me tell you how I feel 